Well, turning your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, we're continuing, of course, our study of uh, the Gospel of Matthew, and, and Matthew presents Jesus as the King of the Jews, and we're really, we're at a, a turning point, turning point in the ministry of our Lord, because what's happened is this, the religious leaders we saw from the very beginning didn't like him, didn't want him to be there, rejected him, and even as he does his miracles, the religious leaders say that the miracles that he does, he's doing in the power of the devil. And we saw even last time that his hometown rejected him, and we're seeing more and more of the nation as a whole to reject him. And, and so he, he's, we saw that even starting last week, as he taught it, or last couple of times, he began to teach in parables, and now he's going to begin to get the ministry down more to the disciples, and that's when we're going to see what happens this morning. We're going to look at the Word of God, which Jesus Christ feeds the 5,000. It's the only miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels, and it's an amazing thing. We're going to see the compassion of our Savior. He actually is getting off by himself, but when he gets off by himself, he looks up, and all these people are coming, and he has compassion for them, and so it's some great things. We'll see it as we get into it. I think one of the special times, I think, for our church is what we call our fellowship suppers. Many of you have been to them. We have them sometimes in the summer. We always have them at the start of the new year. We always have one at Thanksgiving, which is huge, and we come together as, as a church body, and we remind people, we say, oh, everybody, please bring a side dish and, and a dessert and those kind of things because we don't want to run out of food. I mean, have you ever been in a gathering that ran out of food? One time, Brian and I went over to Tulsa for this meeting. It was supposed to be a bunch of pastors. And when we got there, the electricity in the building, well, the kitchen part of the building, electricity had went off, and there was no coffee, and they were supposed to have a bunch of donuts, and there's no donuts. And so all these people were standing around going, where's the food, where's the food? And they were kind of getting a little frustrated. I can remember a time when I was single, and I went over to somebody's house for supper, and they invited me to eat, and we sat down to eat, and we realized that there were five pieces of chicken and six people. Now, the two pieces I got were just wonderful, but, uh, you know. <laughs> what happens when you run out of food? Well, this morning, we're going to see probably one of the most famous events in the Bible because Jesus takes not 5,000 people. That's 5,000 men. There may have been 20,000 people there. He takes this great multitude, and the disciples come to him and say, Would you, won't you send them away? Maybe they can go in some villages around there, get something to eat. And Jesus looks at them and says, no, you give them something to eat. And we see it's just amazing because there's 12 baskets, large baskets left over of the food. So we'll see it, the love and compassion of our Savior. Well, as we get into this, think about this. Uh, the rejection has become, has started in John 1, 1. It says, he came into his own, his own received and not. That's the Jewish people. We've already seen the leaders declare that Jesus' power is from Satan. And when he went to his hometown, there's no, they weren't even, they didn't respect him. And, and Jesus said, well, that's fairly common. And as we start chapter 14, we're going to see several things. We're going to see about John the Baptist, and then we're going to see uh, the feeding of the 5,000. Let me give you the outline. I call it the death of John, that part, because we're going to get the background of John and Herod, and I'm going to tell you who this Herod guy is. And then I call it dancing and death, because uh, a, girl, a little girl between 12 and 20 dances. Her name is Salome, and we see what happens there. And John the Baptist is put to death. Then we see what everybody calls feeding the 5,000. There's this multitudes. They follow after him. He has great compassion. And then we see him feeding the people. So it's a great passage this morning. So let's start at chapter 14. Look at verse 1 and look what it says. It says, at that time, Herod, the Tetrarch, heard the news about Jesus. Now at that time, this is where Jesus, is, is I think, is beginning to realize 
that the rejection is coming. And, of course, the, the fame of Jesus is, is just spreading everywhere. I mean, uh, people are saying, here's this man. There's this man named Jesus of Nazareth. There's a whole bunch of people following him. He's doing miracles. He's walked on the water. He's done this. He's healed people. He's done all these kind of miracles. And so Herod, Herod the Tetrarch hears these news. And you go, what do you mean Herod the Tetrarch? Herod, a, king, a person that was a Tetrarch controlled a fourth of a region. This man, we call him Herod here, his name is Herod Antipas. His father was called Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the bad man that when Jesus was born, Herod the Great killed all the little boy babies two years old and under because he wanted to kill the Messiah. This was, this was this man's father, and his name is Herod Antipas. And when his father died, his land was divided up. And he's the son. His name is Herod Antipas. He's the son of Herod the Great. And when he died, the land was divided up. And Herod the Great used to control all of this. Well, after he died, one of his sons named Archelaus got this part, and the Herod Antipas, the one we're talking about today, got this part, and then there was another part here by Philip, and then another part, and so this was called, he got a fourth of the big region, that's why he's called a tetrarch, and so he got a fourth of the land that his father used to rule. He called himself a king, but when you look at it, that, that's not a very big area to be a king of, and so he was the king. Now, when we think about this man, there are several things you're going to see in the Bible. First of all, he is the one that heard about Jesus and thought he was John, risen from the dead. He's also the same one that as Jesus is on the way to Jerusalem for the final time, Jesus is going to die on the cross, Herod sends word out to him and says, I want you to get out or I'll kill you. And Jesus said, tell that fox I'll be there in two days. And then the last time we see this man is at the trial of Pontius Pilate when he heard that Jesus was from Galilee and Antipas ruled Galilee. He sent Jesus over to see Herod Antipas and Herod Antipas said, oh, I've been wanting to see him. I want him to, I want him to do a miracle. And when Jesus got there, he said, I want you to do some miracles. Jesus wouldn't even talk to him. Jesus never said a word to this man and he sent him back. He made fun of Jesus and sent him back. So his father was a very evil man a very powerful man, very evil man. He is a very evil man himself. He's not near as powerful as his father was. He's a very evil man. And so it says this, at that time, Herod the Tetrarch, now the reason he's hearing so much is you remember, and I think I can, I think I can go back. You remember most of Jesus' ministry was done up in this part. Every now and then he would go down you know, to Jerusalem, but then he would stay most of the time around the Sea of Galilee. So that's this man, that's that's uh, Herod uh, Antipas. That's his rule, and that's his land. So at that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus, and he said to his servants, this must be, this, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that's why these miraculous powers are working in him. Now, we're going to see that Herod Antipas killed John the Baptist. Now, this is afterwards, and so when he hears all this about Jesus, he says, this Jesus must be John the Baptist who's come back from the dead. Now, when we say John the Baptist, we don't mean Baptist like a denomination. In the, in the Greek, it's John the baptizing one because John was famous for being out in the wilderness and people came to be baptized, to be identified. And so he was called really the John the baptizing one and that's why it's translated as John the Baptist. He has risen, he says, he's risen from the dead. So Herod Antipas says, gosh, he must have risen from the dead and that's why all these miracles are happening. You remember that John the Baptist was the voice crying in the wilderness. He was six months older than Jesus, 
and, and uh, he started his ministry six months before Jesus did, and he dies before Jesus does. And so he's been put to death, and he's the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And John, people say, you know, John the Baptist never did miracles while he's alive, but Herod thinks he must be doing miracles now because that, that Jesus fellow must be John the Baptist who's risen from the dead. Now, right then, then the writer, Matthew, is going to tell us what happened to John the Baptist and how Herod even knows him. It says this, For when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him into prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. Now, Herod... Antipas had John the Baptist put into prison. Why? Well, it says, because on account of Herodias, the wife of Philip. Now, Herod Antipas had a wife, and he just got rid of her. And then his brother Philip had a wife named Herodias, and he said, I just want you to come live with me and be my wife. So she just walked away from Philip and started living with him, which is wrong. And John the Baptist actually went to Herod Antipas and said, it is wrong for you to have her as your wife. You had an original wife. This is actually your brother's wife. You're violating scripture, you're violating everything. And so Herod, when he found, when, when, Phil, when uh, John the Baptist came to him and did all that, notice uh, it says, uh, for Herod, verse 3 again, for Herod had John arrested and, and put in prison because of the Herodias, the wife of his brother. For John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have him. See, John stood for righteousness. In fact, that's what he was known for. He was, he was so different than anybody else. I mean, Jesus hung around with people and he ate and, and talked with them and had meals and everything. John the Baptist stayed out in the wilderness and wore weird clothes and ate locusts and wild honey. And, and he was just a, he was a unique, different kind of person. And he stood for righteousness and he would be one of those guys that would just say, that's wrong and that's right. And so when all this happened with Herod, he went straight to Herod and said, it is wrong for you to have this woman as your wife. So Herod grabbed him and put him into prison. And John stood for righteousness. He was a righteous man. He took a stand for righteousness. So here's a question for us. Do we stand for righteousness? In a fallen world, do we stand for righteousness? Do we live righteously in the midst of a culture? And we know our culture. Is our culture a very righteous culture? It's not very righteous. In fact, there's all kinds of things that are wrong that are going. Do we stand for righteousness? Now, what I mean stand for righteousness is living by the Bible. And think about it, where we work in our school and our relationships with our children. Do we stand for righteousness? Do we live righteously? I always use, think about this example. We tell our children, we say, we want you to always tell the truth, always tell the truth. And then a phone call comes, and it's the boss and your father says, I don't want to go to work today. Tell him I'm sick. So your kids see that. But you just told them, don't tell lies. Do we stand for righteousness? Do we live righteously and godly? We want to be above reproach. And in the, as, as that passage says in Philippians, be above reproach in the midst of a, of a crooked and perverse world. I think of Ephesians where it actually says that expose evil, live righteously. Matthew chapter 5 says that we're to be salt and light in the world. So as John the Baptist was known as a righteous man because he lived righteously, I hope and pray that we stand for righteousness and we live righteously in a fallen world and that we don't compromise what we actually believe just because the world and the culture says certain things are right or wrong. It is so hard sometimes to stand for what's right in a fallen world. I remember Matthew Henry, he was a famous Bible teacher. He said, if you're not careful of the appearance of sin and the temptations of sin, not very long from then you'll be committing sin. 
And it's so easy to say, well, that's what everybody else does. And so if everybody else does it, it's not that bad. Before you know it, there's problems. So Herod Antipas wanted to get rid of John the Baptist. He arrested him because, I mean, just picture, you're, you're, you think you're a king. You're a tetrarch. And John says to you, you should not have that woman. And he says, arrest this man. And he put him in prison. We're not sure how long he was in prison. Some, some estimates, maybe he was in prison for a year. But look what it goes on to say again in verse 4. He says, For John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. So why didn't Herod kill him then? Because he could have. He's, he's a king. He, although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. It is so true that the, the, the crowd... Uh, if you remember that later on, Jesus, uh, religious leaders are challenged Jesus, and Jesus said, let me ask you a question, because they come to Jesus and say, what authority do you have, Jesus? And Jesus says, let me ask you a question. I'll tell you what authority I have if you'll answer my question. Was John the Baptist, was his ministry from God or from men? And the religious leaders got in a big huddle, and they went, if we say from God, he'll say, why didn't you believe him then? If we say from men, the crowd will stone us, because everybody thought John was great. So they came back to Jesus and said, we don't know. And he said, well, I'm not going to tell you. And that's what he did. And in this one, Herod said, I'd like to put John the Baptist to death, but I'm afraid of the crowd because everybody thinks John is a great prophet of God. And he was. In fact, Jesus said, out of all the people who have ever lived, John the Baptist is the greatest. That's what Jesus said. So the best you can be is number two. Right? I mean, that's at this stage. So let's think about it. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. But what happened? But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased them. Now remember, Herodias is the woman that used to be Philip's wife, and he grabbed her, and he's married to her, he's with her, and her daughter comes to dance. Her name is Salome. And it doesn't tell us in this passage, it tells us some other places. She was between, she could have been as young as 12, she could have been as old as 20, the way the language is there. It just kind of gives us that she was a young girl. And she came to dance. Now, we don't know what kind of dance it was. It could have just been her dancing, or it could have been even some sexual, sensual type dance. We don't know. But the crowd, there's a, he's got a big group of people there for his birthday party. And so Salome comes out and dances before him. And he said, oh, that's the best dancing I've seen in a long time. And so he makes a promise. He so much, it was so good. He was so pleased by that. He promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked for. Now, she's 12 to 13 to 14 years old. What would she ask for? What would a 13 to 14-year-old girl ask for today? Maybe a cell phone, some new clothes, a car. What do you want? What do you want when you're 13, 14, 15 and he says, I'll give, in fact, the other passages, one of the other gospels says, I'll give you up to half the kingdom. Now, that doesn't mean he would give her half the kingdom. That means whatever you ask for, I'm going to give you something really nice. He didn't know what she was going to ask for. So what happened? Having been prompted by her mother. Now, who's her mother? Her mother's Herodias. Her mother is the one that she's really mad at John the Baptist too because John the Baptist said, you shouldn't be with this man. And so she calls her daughter and says, here's what I want you to ask for. I want you to say you want John the Baptist's head cut off and put on a big platter. And she went, what? Yeah, yeah, ask him. Go ask him. In fact, the way it's written in the Greek when it says having been prompted, that, that word actually has an idea of, of pushed, like going up there and tell him. Go tell him what you want. And so she goes to Herod in front of all these people and says, I want John the Baptist's head on a big platter. In fact, notice, 
It says, having been prompted by a mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And she doesn't mean, you know, sometime when you get a chance, kill him. She says, I want it now on a big platter. Well, you know from the Bible, they went and killed him. They went and cut his head off. When they came into the cell, I, I, you imagine John the Baptist was there. He's been there maybe for a while. He, know, he doesn't know why they're coming to get him. He may even be thinking, they're going to let me out. And they cut his head off. So Herodias saw this as, as an opportunity to get rid of John. And so having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist, although he was grieved. He got, uh-oh, he went, uh-oh. The king commanded to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest. He, he said, because, well, I promised. I don't really want to kill him because, remember, he's afraid of the crowd. I don't really want to kill him, but I made a promise, and I don't want to look bad in front of the crowd. I mean, these are all my guests, and I, they heard me say, I'll give you whatever you want. And she said, I want John the Baptist's head. And so I'm, I'm pretty much stuck. I've got to do it. He's trying to justify putting a man, putting to death an innocent man. Don't you think it's easy? to justify sin, to justify that what we do is right or wrong. We say, oh, hey, everybody else does it. It's okay. Well, that, that's just the way I am. That's just the way it is. And it's so easy for us to, to justify sin. I deserve it. Just this one time. It really won't hurt. Herod had no strength to stand for what was right. See, in our culture, there's a lot of people that they just want to say, what does everybody want? Then I'm for that. Oh, if everybody wants this, then I'm for that. It doesn't matter what it is. It's not rights or wrongs. You just look out and say, I'm just going to go with the crowd. Whatever they think's right, I'll think is right. Whatever they think's wrong. You know, instead of standing for the truth of the Word of God. Do you and I take responsibility? Do we stand for what is right? Do we choose to live for Jesus Christ in the midst of a crooked world? I want you to think about this. The forerunner of the Messiah was killed by a weak, wicked man and the request of a Jezebel woman. That's what we have. Sometimes it looks like evil triumphs. Look at verse 10. He sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and the girl brought it to her mother. See, she didn't really want it. It came to her. There's this head on a platter, and she takes it over to her mother. And her mother's glad. She says, I got rid of him. I got rid of the one that told me that what I was doing was wrong. See, we don't like to be told we're wrong, do we? I mean, when we do something wrong, we don't want people telling us we're wrong. Sometimes we read the Bible and we go, that's wrong. Sometimes people tell us it's wrong. His disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported it to Jesus. Sometimes it looks like the wicked win, doesn't it? Sometimes. Sometimes it looks like they get away with it. And one of the Psalms that uh, Asaph wrote, he said, he was doing good. He said, I'm doing good and I'm trying to live for God. And then I look and he said, I see the wicked prosper. He said, their cows are doing good. Their sheep are doing good. Their house is doing good. They got all kind of food. They, they got good clothes. They got everything. And then he says, it seems like maybe I'm living for the Lord for nothing. That's what it says in the psalm. And then he says, and then I remembered their end, that they would be separated from God forever because they didn't believe in him. And see, sometimes we think it looks like the wicked sometimes win, but they don't. 
They don't. One of these days, Jesus Christ is going to come as the King of kings and Lord of lords, as we see in the book of Matthew. He's going to rule in righteousness and justice. He wins. We must take the stand for righteousness in a fallen world. And let me tell you this. As the culture continues to get worse and worse, when you stand for Christ in a fallen world, you may suffer. You may suffer. Because our culture's changed so much. Well, they went and told Jesus. And when Jesus heard about it, what did he do? It said he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of it, they say, followed him on foot from the cities. Now, he's going to a place. Uh, this is the Sea of Galilee. And you remember, this is where Jesus grew up. This is where he did his first wedding, first miracle, Cain of Galilee. In fact, he did the first two miracles there. He's moved to Capernaum because the first time he went to Nazareth after starting his ministry, they tried to kill him. So he left Nazareth and went to Capernaum. That's where he set up his headquarters. And if you remember that we've been seeing a lot, this is Magdala, Mary Magdalene came from that little city. We've seen all the way down here, Gadara, where the Gadarenes were. This is where all those pigs ran into the water. And this is Bethsaida. That's where Philip and Andrew were from. Here's Gesera. That's where that guy was in the tombs, and he, and he, you know, he was a crazy man, and Jesus saw him. Well, the best, the best that we can tell is Jesus is right here. In 1976, I went to Israel, and there's a place called the House of the. There's a there's a church built over a place, and it's called the House of the of the Multiplication of the Bread, and so it's about right there. So what what people believe is that Jesus got in the boat and went across like this. See, sometimes they had to go way across. Sometimes they just went across the, the top part. And so Jesus goes across, and look what it says. When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the seas. When people saw that Jesus was somewhere, they said, let's go, let's go. Because see, what has he done in the past? Well, he's fed them, he's given them, uh, he's healed them, he's done all kinds of things, he's taught them. And so look what happens when he gets there. <clears throat> when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd <clears throat> and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. And it felt compassion. You know, the word compassion actually in the Greek has this idea of your inside. It's like something happens on your inside. It's where you care about people. I don't know. I remember as a young boy, I didn't understand this, but I remember even as young as 10, 11, 12, and then getting a little older, when something didn't seem right or somebody had something happen to them, I said, I don't know why, but I feel so sorry for them. I mean, I think I have compassion. I mean, when I think things ought to be right, and when I see things that's not right, I want to say, that's not right, we need to fix that. And when Jesus saw these crowd of people, and he really wanted to be by himself, he saw the crowd, his disciples are with him, and what does he do? It says he healed them. If you, and, and by the way, about compassion, Lighton Ford said people don't know how, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And it's really true. And, and, and he saw the people and they were like lost sheep. And, and the gospel of Mark tells us that he taught them as well. He didn't just heal. He taught them as well. And he looked at the people with compassion. How, how do we look at people? I mean, think about it. Do we see them as lost and they need Jesus? Do we see them hurting in a fallen world? Do we see them helpless to save themselves? We've got the answer, and it's Jesus Christ. And he's the answer. He's the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. So he's there, and so look what happens. When, the evening, and when it was evening, the disciples came to him, and they said, this place is desolate, and the, crowd is, the hour is already late, so send the crowds away that they may go into the villages and buy food for themselves. 
Now, there's really not a whole lot of place to go. One of the other gospels says there really wasn't anything around there. Where were they going to go? In fact, Jesus and one of the other gospels said, we've got to be real careful because they could pass out on the way. There's no food for them. I mean, they, they don't have anything to eat. And so the disciples say, why don't you send them away so they can find something to eat? That's what the disciples Send them away, they can find food. But I love this next verse because Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And the way it's written in the Greek, the you is emphatic. He says, you, you guys give them something. You can see the 12 guys saying, we're supposed to feed all these people? I mean, we're not, if it was 5,000 people, that would be a lot. But it's not 5,000 people. That's not counting the women and the children. And if, every, if there were families there and, they, and three and four and five kids, and there may have been twenty to 25,000 people there. And he says to them, uh, you feed them. You feed them. He's testing them, really. See, he, the ministry has gone from proclaiming he's the Messiah and the King to now teaching his disciples because he knows he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to die. In fact, very soon, he's going to begin to tell them. He's going to tell them five times in the Gospel of Matthew, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'll be put to death, and I'll rise after three days. He's going to tell them that. And so he says, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, we only have five loaves and two fish. And we know from one of the other Gospels uh, that uh, a little boy came up, and, and they got it, and he said, I've got five loaves and two fish. Now, when I first thought of this, I thought, okay, you know, they... Maybe, maybe some pretty good-sized fish, you know, and maybe some big loaves of bread, but that's not what they had. The fish were like little sardines. They were little bitty fish. The word for fish there means like a little sardine, and the word for bread there doesn't mean like a loaf of bread. It means like a cracker. So basically they had, you know, five crackers and two sardines. That's basically what they had. And, and Jesus, they, they said, how are we going to do this because we only have uh, five little crackers and two fish? And this is the key, though. Now watch the key. Jesus said, bring them here to me. Anything brought to Jesus can be used for God's glory. It doesn't matter whether it's five loaves and two fish or a thousand of something, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's you or whether it's ten other people, it doesn't matter. Whatever we bring to Jesus Christ, he can take and use for his glory. So look what he did. Ordering the people to sit on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up from heaven, he blessed the food. Breaking the loaves, he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. So look what he did. He told everybody to sit down. One of the other gospels says they put them in groups of 50 and 100, and they sat on the grass. And by the way, the best we can tell, it's springtime. It's not too long before Passover. In fact, many of these crowds are probably going to leave here and go to Jerusalem for Passover. And so it's, they're all sitting on the grass in groups of 50 or 100. And then look what Jesus does. He blesses the food. Baruch Hanan. Baruch Hanan was, is the title of the blessing that Jewish people say before they eat. It's called the Baruch Hanan. And so Jesus gave that blessing, I'm sure, for the food. And you can almost see the guy standing there, Jesus with five, you know, crackers and fish, and he blesses it, and he starts handing it to them. And they, he just keeps handing it to them. And he just keeps handing it to them. And it says, and he gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd, and they just handed it out. And, uh, you know, I like what Jesus did because he sowed the thankfulness at the start, didn't he? He said, let's bless this. Let's be thankful. I thank him for you for what God has done. Think about our lives. What has God done for us? 
You know, sometimes when you go to bed, get it at the end of the day, think through the day and say, Lord, thank you for that. Thank you for this. Thank you for that. Thank you for the good meal. Thank you for this. Thank you for my friends. Thank you. Just think about that. I always like the story about thankfulness with Corey Ten Boom. Most of you know who Corey Ten Boom was. She's a lady that was in a concentration camp in, during the Holocaust, and she lived through it, made it out, wrote a book, traveled around. She was a pretty incredible person. Her and her sister were in the prison camp together, and the, the place they were, it was a horrible place. I mean, you, you've, if you've read anything about the Holocaust, you know what it was like. She was in this place, and there were fleas oh, all over them, just eating them up. And her sister said, we have to be thankful for everything. And Corey Ten Boom said, I will not be thankful for fleas. And her sister said, you ought to be thankful for everything. Well, then later on, they had a Bible study. And the prison guards never came into the room when they had the Bible study. And Corey Ten Boom said, I wonder why they don't come in. And her sister said, because of the fleas, they won't come in here. And Corey Ten Boom said, I think I'll be thankful for the fleas. We need to be thankful for everything. And that's what Jesus did here. Now, watch. They, they, I love this verse right here. And they all ate. This is verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied. They picked up what was left over, the broken pieces, 12 full baskets. But look at this. They all ate. By the way, uh, everyone ate. And the word for satisfied is the word for gorged, stuffed. It's like we feel when you get through Thanksgiving and you get ready to go watch a football game and you go, you know, and, and you sit down and you go, gosh, my stomach's sticking way out because you've eaten so much. These people, many of them, I'll bet you, had never been full in their lives. I'll bet you many of these people had never had enough food that they would say they were full. And that day, they had so much food, it said they were gorged, they were stuffed, they were full. It said they ate, they, they uh, all ate, and they were satisfied. The word means they were really full. And they picked up what was left over, the broken pieces, 12 baskets. Now, don't think of a basket like an Easter basket. And we're going to pick up a couple of these things. You know, the, you've seen those donkeys and they got two big baskets on the side. Those were the, that's the size basket that was completely full. Twelve baskets full of what was left over. And there were about 5,000 men who ate beside women and children. I bet you there were twenty to 25,000 people that they fed. See, God is able to satisfy all our needs. God always satisfied, and we can, God can take anything and use it for his glory. Well, we're going to see more. We're going to see what happened after this, because what's the crowd's reaction to Jesus feeding them? We're going to see it next week. And at first you think, well, this is good. But Jesus said, this isn't good, and we'll see why next time. So we've seen the death of, of John the Baptist. We've seen Jesus feed the 5,000. Let me give you some quick applications. Let's take a stand for righteousness. Let's live righteously in a fallen world. I mean, we are the salt and the light. Let's live by the word of God. Let's stand for the truth when we go out these doors. And we're not talking about being legalistic. And we're not talking about being mean. We're talking about standing for what's right, proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ, and being godly men and women in a fallen world. And, and the second thing is, is give our lives to be used for God for his glory. Romans 12.1, offer our lives as living sacrifices. Listen, no matter what you bring to God, he can use it for his glory. So don't look at things from a human standpoint. He can use us beyond what we imagine, whether it's five little things and two little this, or whether it's our little lives, it doesn't matter. He can use you for his glory and just realize this, that God will satisfy. He, only he can. 
we'll be, we will not be missing anything by living for the Lord. So I thought to people, they say, I don't want to miss out on anything. I, you're not going to miss out on anything. You're going to have great, great blessing. The third thing is let's have compassion for others. That's what Jesus did when he saw them. And there are people every day we come in contact with, and sometimes we just walk right past them. And let's look at them at the eyes of Jesus, and let's have compassion. How can our lives be used by God to touch other lives? Well, as we look at this passage this morning with some incredible truths, may our lives be used for the glory of God. It doesn't matter how little or how big, he can use it for his glory.